The views and opinions expressed by guests on this program are not necessarily the views of Thinking Bigger Business Media, Inc. or its employees. Welcome to Small Change of Big Shift. I'm Dr. Michelle Robbins. Today my guest is Mark Whitaker, and Mark has a, a great story to tell and really a lot around forgiveness and redemption. So, Mark, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, and I'm happy to be here today. I appreciate it. Well, Mark, for our listeners that maybe don't know your story, could you share some of your story? I'm very fascinated um, on many levels. So could you share, share your, just your overview of your story? I'll be happy to. Um, it all started uh, when I was a lot younger, man. I'm, I'm, I'm 56 years old now, but it happened a little over 20 years ago. And I'm actually ranked as the highest level executive ever to turn whistleblower in U.S. history. And that's actually a moniker from the, uh, from the FBI, from the Federal Bureau of Investigation, as the highest level executive ever to turn whistleblower in U.S. history. But it's interesting how I became an act- a whistleblower and, and an FBI informant. And that happened really more because of my wife. Uh, I joined a company when I was uh, 32 years old. It was located in Illinois, Decatur, Illinois one of the largest companies in the world, known as uh, ADM, Archer Daniels Midland. Uh, today, they're about $90 billion in revenue and about 30,000 employees, and they were a very large company even then. Uh, back in 1989, when I joined them, they were number 56 on the Fortune 500, and today they're even larger. And my wife noticed a lot of changes in me. At age 32, I was out of 30,000 employees. I was the fourth highest-ranked executive. We had a chairman a CEO, a president, and then myself. I was divisional president of the biotech division, one of the fastest-growing divisions in the company, and also corporate vice president of the company. So I was number four-ranked executive in the company out of 30,000 employees, and, and boy, I got obsessed with that. I really did. It was almost like, a, almost like an addiction uh, to that success, especially at age 32, and our CEO was 75 years old at the time. Our president was 69, so I was significantly less than half half the age of the, of the other executives that were about my level, the supervisors that I had, the three executives that were above me. I was about half their age. And I just got obsessed with that, that lifestyle. It was almost like, a, like a, a, a rock star lifestyle, especially at age 32 in, in, in 1989. And uh, with my stock options and bonuses and base salary, it was well in the seven figures. And keep in mind, that's, that's 24, 25 years ago. We're talking 1989. So seven figures then, you, you can imagine the value of that today, uh, a quarter of a century, uh, uh, you know, being a quarter of a century has passed since 1989, and I, I can recall buying this huge house, this 13,000 square foot house on my first day with eight bedrooms and an eight-car garage, and and uh, the seven top executives got used to the, got uh, full use of the seven corporate jets, and so myself being ranked number four executive, I could take a corporate jet Falcon 50 anytime in any place I wanted to go to, just with about three hours' notice. And and I just, like I said, I just felt like a rock star, and I got obsessed with that lifestyle. And and to the point where I, I really think it really started making some very bad decisions, and maybe that my life became such a greed focus and such a compensation focus that my wife noticed a lot of changes about me. And, and by the way, just to, to mention my wife, Ginger, I've been with since she was in the seventh grade, and she was and she was in the seventh grade, and I was in the eighth grade. Since she was 13, and I've been four, stage 14, and we're, now we're talking. I've been married almost 35 years, uh, coming up uh, mid-year this year, and 
And she noticed a lot of changes in me. She noticed that I was not the person that uh, she fell in love with in high school. And and I grew up in a middle-class family in Morrow, Ohio, about an hour north of Cincinnati. And she grew up in the same town, and we went to the same high school. And I was the homecoming king. She was the homecoming queen our senior year. Uh, I was senior class president. She was treasurer of her class, and she was one year behind me in school. And she just noticed that I really was kind of getting away from the roots that I that I grew up in. And we had a large, just big discussion uh, during after about three years that I was with the company at ADM, about three years. And and she just said, "Boy, I've, I kind of lost focus on her and our three children and on the community." And and my whole focus was working 80, 100-hour weeks and, and all about power and greed and, and moving up the corporate ladder as fast as I could. And, and you know, just my whole focus was all about work. And so we had a big discussion on that. And she also asked me a, a lot about why I was working so much at night, making so many phone calls at night. I would eat dinner at night and get right back on the phone and work another two or three hours in the evening after working all day long. So she had lots of questions about that. And and she could tell something was weighing very heavily on me for for those last several months when we were having this discussion. This discussion would have been happening in November of 92, uh, 20, 21 years ago. And so in November of 92 is when we were having this discussion. And she said, boy, it seems like the last seven months something's really changed in your life. Uh, even though you've been three years with the company at this point, it seems like the last seven months something really changed. And so I opened up with her for the first time that I was involved with a price-fixing scheme uh, that I was being taught and being trained by people that have done it for years within ADM. Uh, uh, it was proven in court that it was going on a decade before I even joined the company. And where a price-fixing scheme, basically an international cartel, uh, was formed, and, and I was being trained and, and mentored how to how to be involved with that, how you can make larger profits for our for our ingredients that we were making at ADM. And, and by the way, ADM makes is one of the largest food manufacturer or food additive manufacturers in the world and it's difficult to buy a grocery out of the grocery store that doesn't have some ingredient from ADM in it. Uh, I mean a beverage, uh, be it beverage or Kellogg's cereal or or Kraft or Pillsbury and they are one of the largest food additive companies in the world and, and almost every food that someone would put in their grocery cart or beverage, most likely at least one ingredient from ADM would be in that food if they looked at the ingredient label on the side of that package. So they are they are a company that touches most people's lives and most families' lives around the world, and we were fixing the prices of some of those ingredients, and it was a theft of about a billion dollars a year theft uh, with this price-fixing scheme, and here we are already a $70 billion company and at the time, and as I mentioned, they're about a $90 billion company today, and it sure didn't make sense to be involved with the price-fixing scheme for the company because we were already very successful but it's a perfect example, but with greed, it's it's never enough. And so when I started sharing that with Ginger, and here she was, a stay-at-home mom, raising three young children uh, at the time and hadn't worked in the, in the workforce for about a decade, but she was very busy raising our children and raising a family, and especially the number of hours of work that I was doing and, and therefore wasn't participating much in, in raising our children. She she really, uh, she she got, you know, she asked lots of questions about the price fixing, who was affected and who was really paying for that theft, and I explained to her that every consumer that went through the grocery store line around the world was paying for that for that theft. They paid a little extra for those groceries because when food additive companies or food companies like Kellogg's or Kraft or Coca-Cola or Pepsi or, or Pillsbury, when they pay added prices for those ingredients, they pass that on to the consumer. And so, therefore, the consumers are really paying for that theft 
every time they went to the grocery store. And boy, she didn't like the sounds of that. And and she and here's a, a, an example of an ordinary person doing something very, very extraordinary. Uh, she really thought about it for a while, and and she prayed about it. And she made the decision that if I didn't tell the FBI or the authorities about what was going on and turn myself in, that she would turn me in. And and she also felt like it was a perfect opportunity to do it because I was involved with the crime for about seven months, and the crime was going on for about 14 years prior to that. So she thought, boy, I'm so so new into it. It would be a perfect opportunity to turn myself into the authorities before I'm too deep into it. And uh, she really was adamant about it, and she wouldn't waver after an hour or two discussion that we had. So within that same day, November 5th, 1992, I was literally sitting down with the FBI confessing for four hours that I'm involved with uh, the largest price-fixing scheme in U.S. history involved in a billion-dollar theft a year. Not a million, but a billion. And I think you can imagine the, the kind of reaction I would have got from the FBI uh, when you confess to stealing a billion dollars a year. And, and at that point, uh, when you confess to that, that's how I became an FBI informant because I, I would have actually would, would have been incarcerated that day for confessing to that crime or would have had to wear a wire for the FBI. They thought it would be for four or five weeks. I actually wore a wire almost every day for three years, every day to work, taking my coworkers, my supervisors, and my friends. And I, I was a guest speaker for the FBI at the Quantico FBI Academy uh, January of 2011 and was informed that I wore a wire the longest, it was the longest duration of anybody wear a wire in U.S. history. They've never had anybody wear a wire Monday through Friday every day, uh, eight, nine, ten hours a day for three years. So it was definitely an interesting experience uh, to becoming a whistleblower and also become an informant, but I really give full credit to my wife how that happened. Well, it's interesting. There's First of all, thank you for being so vulnerable and vulnerable and sharing your story and, and thinking about the the times as I think we're in an age of change where we've come through maybe a time period of uh, of corporate greed and personal greed and just along the and it's and I don't think it's just greed and money. I think it's greed and other things as well. But I'm curious um, a couple things. I'm I'm curious if you you're able to reflect and look back and you think about being that 33 year old person and and watching this happen, did it just kind of all the next thing you know you were in the middle of it? I mean, obviously you probably you had some inkling that it was wrong at the first at the beginning of your career at that seven months, you know, at the beginning of that seven months. No, I'd say it didn't happen uh, automatic. I was with the company for uh, from 1989. I got involved with the price fixing or being mentored how to do it in spring of '92. So I was with the company almost three years. Uh, by that point, I was with the company almost seven years in total. By the time the company it went public, that I was learned that I was the informant. Then I obviously had to leave the company. And there's no way you could be a whistleblower and stay with a company like that. Uh, that would there's just that just never happens where the whistleblower can can stay attached to, to a company they blew the whistle on. But I was with the company for about three years at that time, and I'd say it was a gradual uh, gradual process. And even the seven months where I was involved with the crime, with the price fixing case, when I first crossed the line, which would have happened starting the spring of 92 before I uh, blew the whistle in the fall of 92, even during those uh, seven months, what led up to it was first the vice chairman, who was the number two in the company, who I reported to, he came to my office and gave me a large bonus and, and a large set of stock options. And It was just at a time that in a large part of my compensation wasn't stock options and bonuses, 
But that was at a time that really would not been deserving. It wasn't right at an earnings earnings period or a new product or or a new patent or something of that sort. There really would not been a time when I would have received a a bonus that particular day. But I received this bonus and received those stock options. Then he came about an hour later in, in my office and talked to me about assigning a mentor to me and kind of show me how ADM. Uh, does business and how I could make extra profits on the ingredients that are in my division, the division that I was president of. And and at that point, you know, this was an hour after, and, and when he had told me the name who was going to be my mentor, I already knew he had the nickname and the company, the price fixer. Even though he had nothing to do with my division, I have heard about I had heard about him the three years that I was there. But this was right after I received. Uh, uh, a substantial bonus, six-figure bonus, and a seven-figure set of stock options. It was 25,000 shares of stock options. And so here's the seven-figure set of stock options and the six-figure bonus. And I, and, I, and I was right at the fork of the road. And by that time, I would have been almost 35 years old because I was three years with the company. I, as I mentioned, I joined at age 32, so I would have been about 35. And I, and I at that fork of the road, I just wasn't willing to walk away from that substantial compensation, that uh, the excellent job from the way I was ranking jobs at that point, which was compensation and, and how much money you can make and and how much power, you know, being the 56th largest company on the Fortune 500 had a huge, uh, huge, huge effect on me to be that executive of, a, of that large of a company. And when I got to that fork of the road, I, I really chose the wrong path because the financial rewards meant more to me than doing the right thing. And it was a, uh, it was a huge mistake, uh, definitely the biggest mistake I ever made in my life. And But that's when I got to that fork in the road and I made the wrong decision, money over doing the right thing. Well, it's interesting. Our topic, our topic this month is forgiveness. And so before we really dive into how you started really forgiving yourself, I continue the story. So, so you're on the wire for three years. You um, do what's right at that point. Um, tell us a little bit more of the story. What happens after you blow the whistle? Okay, so I'm wearing this wire for three years, meeting FBI agents at 6 o'clock in the morning. They're shaving my chest. They're hooking microphones to my chest. Uh, 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 under my shirt, it looked like a Christmas tree with these microphones taped to my chest. And I'd have a wire attached to my body. I'd have one in a briefcase, one in a notebook. So I had three different tape recorders rolling uh, each and every day. And uh, I would wear that wire all day long after meeting the FBI agents at 6 in the morning where they would check the batteries and on the recorders and, and tape the microphones to my chest. And, and then at 6 o'clock to midnight, a couple nights a week, I would meet with the FBI again to turn over the tapes and have the debriefings and explain to them whose voice was saying what on, on those tapes. And again, 6 o'clock to midnight, a couple nights a week after meeting with 6 o'clock every morning, and doing this every day, Monday through Friday, for three years. I mean, it was taking a huge, huge toll toll on me. matter of fact, the FBI have a guideline now, and partly because of my case, not to allow an informant to wear a wire more than a year because of the mental strain and, and, and because of what they saw, the meltdown that I went through. In my case, they have a guideline not to allow, unless under very special circumstances, but they have a guideline, try not to allow an informant wear a wire more than a year because of the meltdown they saw in my in my very case, but after about two years wearing a wire, I was out. Of, this scene was in a Discovery Channel documentary that came out in 2010 uh, called uh, called Undercover. It's a Discovery Channel TV documentary. It came out in 2010, uh, titled Undercover. It's on my website called markwhitaker.com. 
And on this documentary, they, they actually had actors reenact this, this act out that I'm about ready to describe because it was so pivotal shift uh, in this case that happened. But I was out on the driveway at 3 in the morning during a horrific thunderstorm. And during this thunderstorm, I was blowing leaves off of the gas leaf blower on our driveway at our home outside of Decatur, Illinois at the time. And my wife heard this gas leaf blower during this thunderstorm at 3 in the morning. She came out on the driveway and she said, uh, Mark, what are you doing? It's a thunderstorm. It's 3 in the morning. She had an umbrella over her head. And I was in a shirt and tie, no umbrella or anything, just blowing leaves off. Keep in mind, I wore a wire by two years at this point when this was happening. This would have been 1994. So I was definitely having a nervous breakdown by that point. And she, she made this comment. She said, well, come back to the house. Come back to the family. She said, more importantly, you need God in your life. And they state that right on the Discovery Channel documentary. And I made the comment, I said, well, who needs God? I'm going to be the president of the 56th largest company in America. It's already been announced that I'm going to be the next president. She said, you don't believe those announcements, do you? She said, the only reason why they announce you're the next president when your president retires, which would have been going from the number four executive to the number two, she said that uh, the only reason why they announce that, they don't know you're the informant. Obviously, if they knew you were taping the, the chairman and the vice chairman and the president and all the other top executives, there's no longer, there's no way you'd be able to stay there. And uh, she said, you have to be delusional to think you're still going to be the next president. And then she walked back in the house uh, at that point, and I started thinking, she's right, I, I am going to lose my job. I'm, I'm no longer going to have that job that I would have had by that point, almost six years by that point. And I just said I could not imagine not having that job, that compensation that I was so used to, and that compensation I felt like I deserved even at that point. And I felt like I risked my life. Uh, even the FBI agents said often, they said, Mark, if these guys catch you wearing a wire, they'll kill you. And they even state that on Discovery Channel documentary. And so I felt like I risked my life for the FBI, and I risked my career for the FBI, and I felt like I deserved a severance package. And I made the decision that uh, knowing that I was going to be fired for being a whistleblower, just like my wife stated, that I would be fired when they learned I was informant. So before my informant days ended, that I decided I was going to write my own severance package. And I basically calculated what I would earn in about three years' time with my stock options, bonuses, and base salary. And I wrote that out to myself, uh, about $9 million, which is about three years of compensation to give me three years to get back on my feet because I thought it would take that long. And I wrote that out to myself uh, during that time. And that was the poorest decision I ever made because what happened is the other executives I wore a wire against went to prison for price fixing, and I went to prison for fraud for writing that $9 million, basically stealing that $9 million from our own company. So uh, we went to prison for two different things. But the worst wow. decision I definitely ever made in my life that night out on that driveway. Well, like you said, you're were, you were, uh, under tremendous amount of duress, but it's, it's still fascinating. Well, um, we're going to take a break. So you're listening to Mark Whitaker, and you can find him at markwhitaker.com. Um, Dr. Michelle Robin on Smart Companies Thinking Bigger Radio, Small Changes, Big Shifts. We'll be right back. It's true, who you know is important, but what you know and how you apply that knowledge is what helps accelerate your career. Benedictine College's Executive MBA program is the only one-year Executive MBA program in Kansas City. The North Johnson County campus and weekend class times are convenient and allow you to learn from world-class thought leaders and collaborate with other executives who intend to make a difference in their business and their community. Go to benedictine.edu slash EMBA. Your product outshines the competition, so why aren't you outselling them? 
You're meeting sales projections, but the bottom line just isn't what it should be. Technology is changing rapidly and impacting your ability to perform. Something needs to change, but you just can't put your finger on what. I'm Patrick Shore, your host at The Hut, where we tackle these and other issues. The Hut is a safe place where we can explore what it takes to not only stay in front of the competition, but make it irrelevant. So come on in, kick off your shoes, and join the conversation every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Central Standard Time on Blog Talk Radio, Smart Companies Thinking Bigger Radio Network. The Hut, your path to a stronger, thriving, profitable business. Welcome back to Smart Companies Thinking Bigger Radio with Dr. Michelle Robbins, Small Changes, Big Shifts. Today my guest is Mark Whitaker, and you can find him at Mark, M-A-R-K-W-I-T-A-C-R-E dot com. And we spent the first part of the show really teeing up kind of what Mark was going through at the age of 33, 33 to about 36, three years of uh, being, the, being wired the longest informant in FBI history. And, Mark, we're at a point where you made a decision in the middle of year two when you were having a meltdown in the middle of the night to decide to embezzle $9 million from the company. And so you have um, – you said you were talking about going to prison. Tell me, tell me a little bit about going to prison because the logical person would say, and I think this is part of your story, is that, okay, well, I gave this great – I'm saving the, this company to the FBI and they are able to take care of this uh, long price fixing of this big, large company. 56 in the world. What what happened after that? Because you would think that you would just get a slap on the hand and say, oh, you're out of here. I did feel like here's this billion-dollar crime that I solved uh, by wearing a wire for three years every day, sacrificing my life, meeting the FBI at 6 o'clock in the morning, being with them till midnight, a couple nights a week, and, and, and wearing the wire for, as they kept telling me, the longest duration in U.S. history. And, and, and they said my life was at risk, so I felt like I risked so much. And by that time, by the time the case ended, I was with a company almost seven years total. And I knew I was going to be fired. Whistleblowers are not very popular in corporate America. It's actually easier to get a job as a felon than it is a corporate whistleblower, especially in the 90s. In the mid-90s, corporate whistleblowers were really were the prize. Uh, so would not, I knew it would be, take some time to get another job. So here I have this seven-figure job for seven years, and now I'm going to lose it because of uh, being a whistleblower and wearing a wire for the FBI, and I felt I deserved at this time. I'm just telling you what I thought at that time. I don't feel this way today, but 20 years ago, especially this was at a time had I wore a wire already for two years, so I was under a lot of pressure, under a lot of stress. I was already kind of in the middle of a meltdown. Obviously, to be blowing the driveway off with a gas leaf blower at 3 in the morning kind of shows I was going through a meltdown at that period of time. But I felt at that time that I deserved uh, – I knew the company wouldn't give me a severance for being a whistleblower. They would just fire me. So I felt like I should have a severance because of what I risked for the FBI help resolve a billion-dollar crime in the largest international cartel or the largest price-fixing case in history. So I just felt I deserved that, and that's why I did write that uh, uh, to myself. Uh, three years of my uh, compensation to allow me three years to get back on my feet. The amazing thing is when uh, the – when a year later, when it did come out that I was informant, so then obviously no longer was I going to be moving from divisional president to president of the company. But when it was learned that I was going to become, uh, when it was learned that I was the informant, the FBI was contacted by ADM and said, "Hey, Mark Whitaker's no white knight informant. He sold nine million dollars from us." So immediately, when they learned I was the informant, they turned me in for the nine million. They felt that the FBI uh, or ADM felt like if I put them in flames for price fixing, they were going to put me in flames 
for the fraud, so we ended up telling on each other is what we ended up doing. I just felt like I deserved uh, a severance, and knowing that the company would not give me one when they learned I was the whistleblower, therefore I decided to uh, to write my own, which is to allow me three years to get back on my feet. And the amazing thing is when uh, after I did that and, and I wrote $9 million to myself, I, had, I was high enough in the company in order to do that, high left level executive to do that. The amazing thing is the FBI agents uh, immediately, when, when ADM learned I was the informant, they contacted the FBI and said, look, Mark Whitaker's no white knight informant. He stole $9 million from us. ADM made the decision that if I put them in flames on price fixing, they were going to put me in flames for fraud. And, uh, and so basically they end up telling on me and I end up telling on them. And they did that the very day that they learned about uh, that I was the whistleblower. So in other words, they would have not said anything about the theft if, it, if I wasn't a whistleblower. But once they learned I was a whistleblower, then, you know, they used that against me. And the amazing thing is the FBI agents still supported me. And they came to my home and said, Mark, we're going to try to get the best plea deal we can get for you. And they, along with my lawyer that I had at the time out of Chicago, went to the prosecutors and, and the FBI agents kind of helping in the background. Uh, you know, they made arguments that I was the highest level executive uh, ever in U.S. history to turn whistleblower, that I wore a wire, the longest duration of any whistleblower in U.S. history uh, for the FBI. They also made the arguments that I helped resolve a billion-dollar-a-year theft that was going on for over a decade on this large international cartel price-fixing case. And they also made the arguments that I stole $9 million at a time where my mental stability was really at its worst after wearing a wire for such a, a, a lengthy period of time. So the prosecutors listened to those arguments, uh, the arguments from my lawyer and the arguments from the FBI agents, and they, they agreed with that, and they eventually agreed to a six-month plea deal six months, and I would have been six months in a federal prison camp with no fence, uh, a camp like where the Watergate uh, Watergate executives would have went during the uh, the Nixon era Watergate scandal, and I, I did not accept that deal. I threw that plea deal in the trash can. I just could not imagine doing six months in prison after wearing a wire for three years, and I would not accept that, and I fired that attorney. I threw that plea deal in the trash can. I had 48 hours to sign it. And I ended up fighting that case with a new group of lawyers and with everything I had and fought that case for two years, only to get a 10-year sentence two years later when I had a six-month deal right in front of me. So here's, did you have to give the uh, money back? Yes, absolutely, too. And you had to give the money back before you fought it? Yes. Okay. I was, the money I had to give back, and it's one of the reasons why my sentence was five years cut, cut off. It would have been a 15-year sentence instead of 10 by paying the, the $9 million back prior to sentencing. So that's the first thing you do is, is give the money back to get a better sentencing. But I could have had a six-month deal, and still, you still would have to give the money back, obviously. But by fighting that case, I ended up with a 10-year deal, 10-year sentence instead, because if you don't accept a plea deal and you fight a case and the government has to spend millions of dollars to prosecute you, it's a whole different sentencing outcome than a plea deal, than a plea agreement. So I, I I threw that plea deal in, in in the trash. I just and I think part of it was the mental stress that I was under after wearing a wire for three years too. I was not in a very good decision making uh, uh, process, and, uh, and therefore I made some very poor decisions. For one, to take the money at all, and then two, not to take that plea deal. There's obviously two very critical decisions that I made some poor choices there. And and then like I said, when they spend millions of dollars in prosecuting you, the sentencing can't be the same as a plea agreement. And that's how I ended up with a 10-year sentence instead. 
Wow. So, in your wife, what? What? So, let's let's really dive in a little bit to this forgiveness sub- subject. How does that start to? You know, you're you're still married. You said that in the very beginning with Ginger. So, how did your wife handle that? And your kids? Well, here's my wife and, and my children. And my wife at the time, and keep in mind, she's the one that basically forced me to turn myself into the FBI. She knew it was the right thing to do. She knew I was only involved with the crime for seven months. She thought, what an opportunity to turn myself in and get full immunity, which I did have full immunity up till the, uh, until the $9 million uh, fraud. So she, you know, she really made the right decisions and made the right choices. Even when I had the, the, the six-month plea deal, she was sitting by my side when I had the six-month plea deal offered to me, and she begged me to sign it, and she's done lots of interviews, and there's several interviews you know, on my website, markwhitaker.com, with her on them. And one of the things she commonly says that divorce was never an option for her. I just her faith didn't allow it. Divorce was never an option, but she said murder was, and she considered it twice. And I, and I think you can see where uh, she would consider murder on. And, and I'm saying that kind of jokingly way, but you know, she said murder was an option because there were some very poor choices there. For one, to take the money at all, and then two, not to take that plea deal, were some very poor choices. But she also knew I was under a lot of pressure. She knew I wore this wire for three years, and 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 she really and she even understood. Even though she knew it was wrong, and I deserved to be punished for it, on on writing my own severance, basically, which ended up being a fraud. She also understood my reasoning, where I was trying to protect the family, the the compensation that I was used to earning for those seven years. She could understand a little bit what my thinking was, but uh, so she did forgive me for that, and, and I would say she probably forgave me for that even quicker than she did the six-month plea deal. She thought the six-month plea deal, me throwing that in the trash can and not accepting that, it took some longer time for forgiveness for that, but she did uh, she did forgive me to the point where I was in three different prison locations during those. There's no parole in the federal system, so when you get a 10-year sentence, you have to do 85%. You get 15% off for good behavior. There's no parole like some of the state prison systems where you can get out earlier. So the earliest you can get on a 10-year sentence is 15% off good behavior, and that's exactly what I got. And that's the most um, uh, that's the most mitigating circumstance you can get. So I did eight and a half years on those 10 years. And in prisons, there's better locations you can get to than others. So when people, when people are in the federal prison system, they're always trying to get to a little better place to be at and also a better place for their family to to be at in a better city, and so I made three different transfers in total, three different prisons during the eight and a half years I was in, and you know, my wife moved to each city and each state, it was three different states, and they allow Friday nights and all day Saturday and Sunday, 20 hours a weekend for your family, your wife and children, to visit you in prison, and she visited 20 hours a weekend for eight and a half years. She, wow. she moved to each state, lived near each prison for eight and a half years. And the divorce rate, by the way, if one serves five years and longer in the federal prison system, if you serve five years and longer, the official statistic is a 99% divorce rate, 99%. And my wife moved to three different states, lived next to each prison, and her and my children visit 20 hours a weekend for eight and a half years. You know, I'm trying to get Ginger to also come on our show, and I'd like to hear her story and talk about forgiveness. But what I want to really focus our last ten minutes on the show today is I want to focus on you forgiving yourself. And I think that a lot of people get stuck. And, you know, as you know, I work with people on this whole well-being, whether it's mind, body, spirit, and people get so trapped in either forgiving somebody else or really forgiving themselves. Can you talk a little about how you've learned to forgive yourself and move on and let go? 
Yeah, I do. And, and I would say it's it's a process. It's not just the, the snap of the fingers and you forgive yourself. When I think about what I put my my family through, for one, I, I had full immunity, so I wouldn't have done any sentencing at all if I just would have just kept doing the right things and wearing the wire for the FBI and not doing anything on the side. I had full immunity, and then I ended up getting a six-month deal, even with uh, the theft involved, because of, because of my substantial cooperation, they gave me a good deal. And then I wouldn't take that. So, I mean, I kept getting in my own way every step of the way. I became my worst enemy. And, again, I think some of those poor decisions were being made with, with the pressure of wearing a wire for three years. I, I definitely wasn't thinking clearly, that's for sure, uh, to the point where I even attempted suicide. I even attempted suicide uh, uh, before I went to prison, and I just – you know, when I had a six-month deal, and now I'm looking at 10 years in prison, I, I just look what I put my family through, and I just, I just couldn't fathom doing my family having to go through 10 years me in prison and just all the embarrassment of the mess, you know, going from a divisional president of one of the largest companies in the world now to an inmate, uh, inmate number 07543-424, and I just couldn't fathom that, and I couldn't put my hands around it to the point where I tried to take my own life shortly before I went to prison. And so it took me a while to, to forgive myself, and even still today, now you're talking 20-something years, I'm 56 years old now on a crime that happened in my early 30s over 20 years ago. And even still today, I think about our youngest son was six years old when I went undercover of our three children. I think it had the biggest impact on him. He was six. He was 12 years old when I went to prison. I never saw him even when I was undercover when he was six because I was with the FBI till midnight. So here's this six-year-old, and his dad's going undercover for three years. And, and then from his age 9 to 12, I'm fighting this case through trials and, and court hearings and then in prison from his age 20, 12 when I went in to age 21 and a junior in college when I got out. Yeah, I mean, it's just amazing how much my children, I mean, they visited every weekend with my wife, how my three children and my wife still love me today. I, I mean, I still can't fathom how, my, how, they, how they did that. And even today, in terms of forgiving myself, I still look back what I did, and I do forgive myself because I know God forgives me, and God gave me a clean slate, and and I, I started, I became a believer, and and I became a believer in God uh, during my third month in prison, and and really, my if it wasn't for my faith, I don't believe I would be living still today. I really do. My faith had a a big impact on me, and I don't, and I believe it was because of my wife's faith. There are 99%, I mentioned the 99% divorce rate, I think because of our, her faith in God is the way our, reason why our, our marriage survived and the reason why she moved to each state and each, to each prison. But I will say this, even still today, it still haunts me when I think about what I put my, what my family through. I do forgive myself. I know God forgives me. But I, I do wake up and think about what I put them through 20 years ago, and I put them through a living hell. A living hell, but uh, so the forgiveness is not a snap the fingers and an overnight thing. It is a process, and, um, and and I will say we've really made a lot of headway in that process. But it is not a it is not an overnight thing. In terms of my wife and kids forgiving me, I feel like they've made it a lot further in that process than even me forgiving myself. They have completely, completely forgiven me. They. They, they understand the mistakes I made. They understand that I was making some poor decisions under a lot of stress. Uh, you know, being a corporate executive, that's, that's already a lot of pressure. You add being an FBI informant on top of it, that's such, a, that's such an addition to the amount of pressure that you have just as a normal corporate executive. So they understand some of the poor decisions I made, and they have completely, completely forgiven me. Well, it's, it's and my wife and I have been married. Uh, we're married 35 years. 
this year. Thirty-five, 35 years. years. I, th- I think about um, as, as we start to wrap up the call, this call, and I, th- I really um, love that you started to touch on the faith a little bit, and I know Ginger will touch on that more, and really um, finding that opening for something greater than yourself inside your heart to realize that the path and the journey. Um, as, we start, as we start to wrap up, and I think about hearing your story and then reading your story, I, th- I think about you sharing all the good you did in present. And mind you, you're a well-educated person. You know, I believe it's a Ph.D., correct? Yes, I have a bachelor's, master's from Ohio State University. I have a Ph.D. in biochemistry from Cornell. I was one of the younger uh, Ph.D.s from an Ivy League university during that time. I was in my early 20s with a Ph.D. in biochemistry from Cornell in New York. And, uh, yes, so, and I'm actually in the biotech field. I work for a biotechnology company today where I utilize that Ph.D. in biochemistry. Well, like in my industry, that's another thing for Gabe. My industry for Gabe, I'm who's rehired back in the biotech industry the last seven years since my release, and I'm COO and president of a, a well-established biotechnology company involved with cancer research. So not only did my family, my family example forgiving me, my industry, the biotech industry, forgave me. It gave me a second chance. When you're out, and I know that you speak a lot, you're on the road. How many how many days a year are you on the road away from your family? And I, I think it probably goes to some of your books. Maybe you could talk about your book, Redemption. Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, we have a book uh, called Again, Mark Whitaker Against All Odds. I'd say it's probably more really even about my wife than than even, even, even about myself. And I do present quite a bit. I presented uh, over the last 12 months. I Over the last 12 months, I had 86. 86 presentations, and some some of them fairly large audience, some of them in the two to 4,000 people audience range. Most of them at faith-based uh, events like mayor prayer breakfasts and things of that sort. Uh, so the cities usually have an annual mayor's prayer breakfast, so that's a lot what I present at, story of redemption and second chances. And my wife goes to a lot of those events with me. She probably went to about a third of those events with me. We have about the same number planned over the next 12 months, so we present seven or eight times per month. She gets involved with the Q&A of some of those events because people are so interested in her, how she and the children forgave me and gave me a second chance. And so it's not just an example of God's redemption, and, and, and it's really an example of society and my family forgiving me. So yeah, I do, I present a lot, uh, a lot of events about uh, redemption and second chances and forgiveness. What do, what do you think is next for you? Right now, I really see us continuing that. We really enjoy t- touching other people's lives, and, and I really learned that in prison. I, I really, for the first time in my life, at $20 a month for eight and a half years that I was earning in prison, I had a chance to serve other people and help other people in prison get their GEDs, learn how to read, learn how to write. And I found that so rewarding, much more rewarding than I ever did a, a seven-figure salary in one of the largest companies in the world. And so I, since I've been out for the past seven years, I really find it very rewarding going out and giving people hope that are going through extreme adversities. A lot of them have given up hope, and we share our story with them, and, our, and we share even our marriage with them, because a lot of these are couples events, too, for couples. And what Ginger and I, we share our story with them, and we feel like it gives people hope that are going through a lot of, uh, a lot of adversities in life. I'll stay employed in the biotech industry, and I enjoy that, and I feel very blessed to be rehired in the biotech industry, but I, I really enjoy out uh, giving. Uh, I really enjoy going out and, and giving people hope as people get get confronted with adversity, and there's plenty of adversity out there. Well, you're listening to uh, Small Changes, Big Shifts with Dr. Michelle Robin, my guest, Mark Whitaker, and we're going to wrap up. But Mark, give me your 
two biggest takeaways uh, from this journey, and it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be the, the from 33 to I believe you said 56, 57. You just you're just in life. If you had to tell our listeners two big moments or two big oh gosh opportunities to grow or just two two words of wisdom, what would you share? Yeah, they would be this: that no matter what adversity they're going through, no matter if it's a financial adversity or a marriage adversity or or a medical issue with a spouse or a child or a parent that no matter what adversity they can get through they can they can become better and not bitter and that's exactly what our family did through this extreme extreme adversity we got we thrived it not just survived it and we got better and not bitter and so no matter what adversity they can get through that's the main takeaway that i would would tell them and especially with god in their life and with faith that they can get better and not bitter no matter what they're going through in their lives i love that once again, you're listening to Small Change and Big Shifts. My guest, Dr. Mark Whitaker. So go out and get better, not better. Make it a great day. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.